Welcome to the Purdue Basketball Podcast. I'm Elliot Bloom, joined by the voice of the Boilermakers, Larry Clisby, episode 36 here on the podcast. And today we welcome in Mike DeCourcy from the Sporting News and also the Big Ten Network. Mike, uh, thanks a lot uh, for taking time to join us here. Oh, I'm happy to do it, Elliot. Thanks for having me. So um, we, we talked a little bit off uh, before we started uh, taping here about your background and um, got your start in Pittsburgh, um, from Pittsburgh. Um, and, and have then made the rounds to uh, other newspapers. But uh, I was curious um, how early you knew you wanted to get into sports journalism. I believe it was fourth grade. Uh, wow. So I was about 10, I think. Um, I, it, it was as simple as uh, when, when other young people in my neighborhood, and I'm sure around the world, still fantasized about being a professional athlete, I figured out right away that was not going to happen for me. Uh, and so, in my, you know, I loved sports. It just was everything to me when I was a kid. And, um, and so I, you know, I remember asking my father at one point about coaching. And my father basically said, yeah, but most of the people who coach used to play. So I said, okay, well, what else is there? And that was when I hit on the idea of, of being in sports journalism in some way. And honestly, I didn't know... Uh, in college, uh, when I when I went to college, whether it would be in print or broadcast, um, because I, I I just my idea was I wanted to be in sports and and so I would do whatever I could to get to to prepare myself to be in in either of those two professions and and ultimately it turned out that the opportunity came first in writing so that's what I did and you know I didn't I didn't get a chance to to do a little real broadcasting until much, much later. But uh, that that was how I I went at it. I knew uh, very early on I wanted to be in sports. And I remember, like, uh, there would always be the journalism teacher who would say, well, if you really want to prepare for this career, you should go and do, you know, cover courts or cover police. And I'm like, no, you don't understand. If I want to do something (laughs) I don't want to do, uh, I want to make money at it. You know right. you know, like my my brother, the accountant. You know, I yeah. no, I, I want to do this because this is what I want to do. So I'll do this, and and that's the way I approached it. Well, that's yeah. why I did exactly the same thing. And my two uh, choices, Mike, were coaching or uh, broadcasting. And what happened was my rationale said, "Well, yeah, I'll make more money in broadcasting." than I will in coaching. So quite honestly, I failed on that one. <laughs> you know, but that, that was that was the thinking there too. You big Bob Prince fan, like everybody from your area was? I was when I was a kid, absolutely. Uh, grew up, uh, you know, baseball. I don't I don't know exactly why I, it, culturally at that at that in that era, baseball was kind of the first sport that you really got introduced yes. to i think it might have just been because of baseball cards as much as anything but um but i got that was that was the first sport that i really cared about and and he was the announcer from for most of my childhood and certainly that was uh, that was a big part of my childhood and then uh, the steelers got good when i was young and and so that became really important as well and, yeah they but stopped. the reality is you know i got into hoops because my brother was a player, uh, played small college at a school called LaRoche in Pittsburgh. And, and so I went to all his games when he was younger, and I just absolutely fell in love with the game. Uh, even though uh, Pittsburgh was not a big basketball area, uh, I fell in love with the game. And the one thing we did have uh, was what was called the Dapper Dan Round Ball Classic. And that was the precursor, basically, of the McDonald's game. 
uh, Sonny Vaccaro started that in Pittsburgh in the mid-60s, and I started going to that when I was a sophomore in high school and got to see some of the greatest players ever go through Pittsburgh in that, in that event, and, and that just continued to feed the addiction. Well, one of the interesting things for me, and I'm about 20 years older than you are, is that uh, when, I, uh, when I grew up in northeastern Ohio, not too far from you, I was in the Youngstown-Warren area, so you either were a Cleveland Browns fan or a Steelers fan. Of course, the Steelers stunk in the 50s and 60s, <laughs> and the Browns were great, obviously, and so I, I ended up in that direction. But I was just going to say, I, uh, there was a, a tournament over there in Farrell, Pennsylvania called the Farrell Lions Tournament. Right. And, and uh, I played in that, went to uh, Warren Holland High School, and I can remember we played uh, Uniontown when they were the Western, uh, uh, that would be what, Eastern Pennsylvania champions at the time, and uh, Uniontown and Farrell, Youngstown, Cheney, and us played in this event, and uh, that was in 1964, but it was a big deal. It was, it was a really cool event to go to, and uh, Uniontown had a couple of guys, Tony Yates, who played at Minnesota, and Ron Seppick, who played at Ohio State on their roster, and uh, it was pretty interesting stuff. Yeah, Uniontown was right down the road from where I grew up, uh, about a, another 20 minutes down the road or so. Huh. You know, Mike, you talked about uh, the fact that you identified um, early on that you couldn't play uh, at the professional level, but one to stay around it. And I, I can remember those same thoughts. Like, you come to that realization at some point in your childhood, like, <laughs> I'm not going to be good enough here. And I was like you, too. I wanted to stay around sports in some way um, and kind of start off in the sports information area. Uh, my, right. so, my son right now is a kindergartner, and when you ask him what he wants to do, he goes, well, I haven't decided yet, either NBA or NFL, one of those two. <laughs> and <laughs> so every time I hear that, well, buddy, you get few, in a few years here, you're going to face so reality had, too. Yeah, so. so you had to bring out the half of 1% deal. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so when you get into journalism, you talked about um, it's just kind of the opportunity presented itself um, to, to, to start writing. Um, it's funny how in your industry now, um, everybody now is a broadcaster uh, and not just, you know, you're not just a writer now. You have to be able to get in front of a camera and maybe that's your iPhone posting it with your story on the website or uh, a lot of writers now in front of the camera. But your industry has changed so much since you entered it. Did you ever think when you when you knew that you were getting into the print area, did you think there would be a chance down the road that you would kind of cross over and do both? You know, I think I, I did hope that it, that I would get the opportunity to do some broadcasting because I've always enjoyed it. Uh, I I worked uh, extensively in college radio, and I, I had a a very brief uh, and tragic uh, six months or so as a traffic reporter for a radio station in Pittsburgh. And wow, I was, there you go. I was literally the worst traffic reporter in the history of the planet. <laughs> I can promise you that. I was terrible at it. But it wasn't the, it was, it was more the traffic than it was the reporting that I was bad at. Uh, so it, I, I, I really enjoyed broadcasting and, and hoped I would get the opportunity at some point. And and as the uh, as the business evolved a little, and you started to see guys bleed into uh, into doing some on camera stuff, like when I was younger, I was probably still in Pittsburgh toward the end of my time there, uh, late '80s, I guess, when the sports reporters started on ESPN, and you maybe saw a little window where there might be some chance to do some things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, I have eventually, when um, when Seth, when I was at Sporting News in the early 
uh, 2000s, you know, I always thought it would be cool if I could get something like what Seth Davis has now at CBS. I just never thought CBS would do that. Mm -hmm. And when they hired Seth, I was like, you were really (laughs) dumb. Why didn't you do something about that? So then I, so then I started to try to approach, uh, maybe get more actively uh, rather than sitting and waiting for it to happen. And, and ultimately after a few years, I got a chance to, to get together with BTN and, and it's been just incredibly rewarding, uh, they're, they're just the most wonderful group of people that I could ask to work with and for. And, and, so, and, 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 I, and, and in addition to the great people at BTN, I've, uh, you know, I've gotten a chance to um, get more connected to the league as well and, and have right. just grow, you know, gained so much respect. Uh, I already had great relationships with pretty much all the coaches in the league, but uh, even, you know, even more so now, uh, now that I'm working more closely with them, uh, you can see, uh, you know, what a what a classy group of people you're dealing with. Well, and for our li- our, our listeners to this podcast, uh, Mike's work. Uh, I think uh, you're a studio analyst for the Big Ten Network, and the the show that I enjoy the most, the Big Ten Basketball and Beyond, on every Sunday evening. Um, it follows the journey, which is itself a great program. And then you come on with another panelist. I know Dion Thomas has been on there quite a bit with you, uh, but Dave Revson hosts that show. And for, for us that grew up in Big Ten country and a big, have been Big Ten fans and, and then those of us who work with programs, um, that's must-see TV for us. And it's great that a show um, focuses on the league. You kind of recap the league, and then you talk uh, basketball at large around the country. But that show, um, I w- it looks like it's fun to do to sit there and talk hoops, but it's, it's great to watch as well. Yeah, we I, I I love doing the show, and and it feels like it flies by so fast when we do it uh, that you wish that we had an hour or more to right. talk. It would be you know it'd be so much fun uh, to to even expand it more. But we re, you know I, I, we've you know, Dave has been with the show, uh, and I have since the beginning. And uh, at the start, we had Jimmy Jackson as a as a as a uh, permanent third guy and then um when jimmy moved over to fox we've had Stephen bardo mm-hmm. uh most of the time but also sean and 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 dion has been on and uh, an occasion jeff settles so i'm always sitting next to somebody who could really hoop that's, that's the key yeah <laughs> and and they've they've all got great insights you know what's remarkable though i in um to me and i guess I'm, i don't have any foresight but it's I've never believed that any of these 24-7 networks would ever work, and it starts with ESPN. You know, mid-70s, they come up with this idea, and I say to myself, are you kidding me? No way, you know? And then then time after time after time, I missed on everything. I mean, you know, players' salaries, uh, you know, this isn't sustainable, wrong, 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 wrong. (laughs) And we get to the Big Ten Network, and I say, nah, wait a second, this... You know, and I've been around a while. It's not like I haven't seen stuff. And I say, nah, 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 nah. I am, I am amazed. I'm amazed at the popularity of the Big Ten Network. I knew that there was a market, but I didn't know that this would hit. Are you as surprised as maybe I am that this thing uh, came out the way it is? And these right fees that uh, now the Big Ten teams are enjoying? Well, I'm not, and part of the reason I'm not is because I've dealt with Jim Delaney for uh, 20 years or more, and he's always been really brilliant. So when he decided that this was an idea, 
um, I trusted that he would make it work. Hmm. And, you know, I, I did not know Mark Silverman and the others, uh, Mark Halsey, et cetera, that are involved in the business side of BTN at that point. But uh, I did know Delaney, and I knew what his track record was. Uh, everything that he had done to that point had always been, in, in, from a business standpoint, had always been right on point, uh, adding Penn State, things like that. Uh, so I knew that it, that this would work uh, to, in some way. Uh, the, to the extent that it has and as successful as it's been, I think a lot of that is on to the people I mentioned before, people like Mark Silverman uh, and Mark Halsey and, and et, et cetera at BTN, the Quentin Carter. I mean, they've done it, Mark Carmen. They've done such a great job uh, of making the place a great place to work and then you know making the programming as good as it is. And so that's you know that's why it's escalated to an even higher plane. It's uh, it's amazing to me. I was just, I commented the other day to Coach Painter and I were talking about our the Big Ten media package is second to none in terms of now that we, with Fox coming on board this year, the Big Ten Network, ESPN still in the mix, uh, CBS on Sunday afternoons. Um, there's a there's not a day of the week that goes by now that there's not a Big Ten game on. And although there might be some challenges for teams in terms of quick turnarounds and things like that, um, it seems like we've really captured uh, some pockets there in the uh, in the viewing times um, to capture people's attention. And uh, it's just a good time right now to be to be in this league. So um, the Big Ten Network certainly uh, at the forefront of a lot of that. And and like you said, Mike, there's uh, something to be said for the people running it because the Pac-12 Network is struggling. Uh, it's not like these things are necessarily a slam dunk. So, yeah, uh, you know, I'm not sure exactly why the Pac-12 has never been able to um, uh, to get their network carried on uh, Directv, which certainly has not, uh, you know, been a positive for them. Uh, and they've also structured it differently as well. Uh, but uh, the the way the Big Ten network was set up was really smart, and it's been really productive and. And uh, you know, I've been I've been really happy to be a part of it. Now, I think that the network has been on for ten years. This, it's, they celebrated mm-hmm. the ten year anniversary in August, and I have been on. Uh, this is my ninth basketball season uh, with the network. So it's it's been it's been really great. And you know, I, I and and I've and it's allowed me to meet a lot of people around Big Ten country as well, which has been pretty cool. Uh, uh, don't get recognized a lot, but every now and then uh, some will come up and say they uh, like the work, and, and, and it's always rewarding to get a chance to meet people who, who love the game. And, and if not in person, uh, then on Twitter as well, uh, people who reach out and say that they enjoy the show and, and enjoy the work, and, and, uh, and I certainly appreciate that. Well, we want to dive into some issues with college basketball, but before we do that, I wanted to ask you because in, uh, part of your role with the Sporting News is you do some soccer coverage for them. And uh, I, I was I was curious where, um, and and following you on Twitter and things like that and having talked to you in the past, I know you've got a uh, passion for the sport. And um, I just was curious about your background with that and how you kind of came to uh, be a big fan of that sport and and specifically uh, you've got a team now in the and I it's at the Premier League yes so talk a little bit about that and how that came about well I I, 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 w- I grew up in an era when soccer was um, was was really scorned by by most sports fans in America and and if if you were interested in soccer you were different uh, it was an oddity uh, and 
kids in, in, in my era didn't play the game, uh, and no one followed the game. And, and, and most of, you know, there's a lot of sports writers my age and even a little younger who still mock the game uh, and, and, and do that, you know, with, you know, with pretty, you know, strong opinions. <laughs> right. And, and, and I, but in, in 19, I remember in 1990 uh, was the first time the World Cup was ever on television, the whole deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Turner Sports that put it on. And it, it, in the past, they'd all, you know, someone would clear out some space and they'd put the championship game on. And I had seen it some. And, uh, but that year they said they were putting the whole thing on. So I said to myself, you know what, this is the biggest thing in the world. I'm going to watch this and find out why is this a big deal. And I, so I watched uh, pretty much the entire 1990 World Cup on television, and I got absolutely hooked. But there was nowhere to go with it right. after that. Yeah, there was no there was no professional league in the U.S. at the time. Uh, the, you know there was no access to what professional leagues there were. So it, I just put that on hold for the next four years. And then when the World Cup came to the U.S., I went to a game uh, in Dallas uh, between Germany and uh, I think uh, I think it was still Germ- no it was Germany at that point. It was wasn't West Germany anymore. It was Germany and South mm-hmm. Korea, and and I went to that with my wife and and sweated through like 120 degrees <laughs> in Dallas and but it was really cool and and again you know put it away because they're still not here and then when when finally in um after after the 2002 World Cup then you know I said okay I'm re- I really love this mm-hmm. and so I decided to start following the Columbus team which was an hour and and a half from my house when I lived in Cincinnati and and I and and then the Premier League was on television and so, which it hadn't really been before that, and so I started to watch that. And the reason I picked Liverpool as my team is as kind of as as odd as this. Uh, in 1998's World Cup, Michael Owen uh, for England scored an amazing goal that you can still find on YouTube against Argentina. And I fell in love with Michael Owen at that point, and Michael Owen was a Liverpool player when I decided to follow the Premier League, so that was my team. Oh, cool. And... It's been really cool. You know, now I can watch pretty much every game they play mm-hmm. uh, with the TV package I have. And, and, I, and my wife, uh, when, I, when we had our 30th anniversary in 2013, my wife asked me what I wanted, and I said, I want to go to Liverpool for a game. So we did wow. it, and it was really awesome. And I would, you know, anybody who's into the game, uh, I would always encourage to, to make a pilgrimage like that. It was really cool. And then in 2014, um, I was blessed to get the opportunity to cover the World Cup in Brazil and it was the best experience that I've had as a sports journalist. It was wow. it was tremendous. That's really cool. Yeah, that's always been a a bucket list type item for me. Is I'm not a huge soccer fan, but I do appreciate the sport, and I do um, I've, I'm very intrigued by the Premier I've League never, over I've, there. I've never been intrigued by it, and I you know if you're dealing with soccer moms and kids that have to go to soccer practice, I don't like. But I will say this. <laughs> Because you're an old curmudgeon. Yeah, right. I'm, <laughs> that's exactly true. But I will say this. Uh, our trip to uh, Spain recently. And, right. Uh, uh, we were there and, of course, uh, went to Madrid and also went to Barcelona. And at Madrid, we we toured uh, Real, Real Madrid's, yeah. uh, you know, stadium. It, right. It was incredible. And, of course, I'm a, I'm a big guy when it comes to mowing grass. And so uh, Elliot's dad. And I were just amazed at how green the uh, the uh, stadium field was, and and I was just 
amazed at how they mowed it because they mowed it with power mowers by hand. They didn't do it on a on a machine. And so, the, but the whole experience. And then we went over to Barcelona, and again, RB Elliot's dad and myself. We 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 couldn't wait to get our you know Barcelona hats, which we both have now. And uh, and we looked. I'm telling you, we went for six hours to find the right one. And so, yeah, you, guys got, and, hooked. you and, got a little bit yeah, of the fever. Yeah, you got a little of the fever. And that, and now, you know, when you hear this stuff, now, you know, you turn your head and you, you have an understanding. But what you, the real understanding to me was, especially in Barcelona, was how many fans were there just to get in the stadium. They're never going to get a ticket. A lot of those people right. are never going to see this team live. But they were there, and I mean, I'm talking thousands waiting to get in there. With the day we went, and it it was incredible. It was incredible to me, and it, and then it just you know it said to me, yeah, this is the most popular sport in the world, and this is the most popular team in the world, and you know it's like someone coming and visit the Dallas Cowboys, you know. So it was uh, it was really it was an interesting experience, really, and I'm. I'll be 71 next month, so for the first time I got hit. Now, I'm never, I, I'm still not going to like taking those kids to practices. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, hey, let them practice, let them play. I understand, but I don't want to have to sit there and talk to the neighbors. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, 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 I, but I, can see how that, I can see how that could, how you could get one over that way. Well, we were blown away at the Real Madrid tour, the, um, all the hardware, the history they had, and some of the exhibits – um, in their Hall of Fame area in the stadium there. Incredible. And when we were talking to, um, we were just talking as with our staff and everything and trying to get some ideas uh, for things to do, maybe steal an idea or two and, and implement it here in Mackey. And then it was like, then we started realizing the price tags with some of these uh, displays. And it, and it was <laughs> it was mind-blowing. I mean, I, I uh, you know, Larry even said it as we were touring. He's like, "This, this is this is the Yankees. This is their Yankees. I mean, this is like going in Yankee Stadium and seeing all their hardware." So, right, really, really cool experience. So, so on uh, on, on the college basketball, and uh, I know that one of the things that uh, you seem to be kind of at the forefront is Mike is just kind of comment commenting on the state of the game and some of the different issues. And so I thought it was timely to have you on because there seems to be a lot of things right now um, being talked about um, and, and some new legislation actually got adopted yesterday at the NCAA meetings in Indianapolis. Um, but one of the things that you've been talking about a lot, it seems like more so this year has been the issue of instant replay. And I kind of want to, Go ahead and give us your take on that, and then I kind of wanted to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah, I'm I'm at the point now where I just I I think that instant replay has been a colossal failure. Uh, I think it's a con. Uh, the idea that it, that we're getting it right because we're using instant replay, except that you know, for instance, in basketball, you're only using it at particular times mm-hmm. uh, on a, on a lot of calls, and in in football, you're only using it on particular types of calls. So I think I think it's a con. You're not you're, if you're not going to make it perfect, which you're not, then I, then why waste our time with it? Is my is kind of my thinking. And you know, I, I look at the you know it obviously worked out great for the Boilermakers, yeah. Um, yeah. but that Michigan game right. when, when you know it, the reality is that the contact was initiated the the, the the action was initiated by the Purdue player. 
And, and indeed, it did t- touch the Michigan player last, but it was initiated by the Purdue player. And I would bet that, you know, we've seen that play happen a hundred million times in the history of the game of basketball. Mm-hmm. And probably in at least half of them, the contact was, was the, the final contact on the ball was on the, you know, the player, the player who was, uh, I guess, technically the offensive player at the point, not the defensive player. Mm-hmm. But uh, because of the nature of the action, it always was called against the defensive player. But now with instant replay, we can look at that and say, well, that actually technically touched the offensive player less, so the defensive player should get the ball. I would bet that probably in that game there were another four or five type of those type plays that probably were were similar or identical. And so I just I think that in, that when you have this, it's sort of distorting the game in in that sense. And then in the other sense, uh, you know, it, it it's such a time suck. It just right, takes right. so much time away. And you know, in football, you know, one of my big problems with it is the idea that okay, your team scores a touchdown, and now you and and sh- wait, should I get excited about that? Did we just win the game, or right. now they have oh, to come no. in and tell us whether we really just won the game? Right, yeah. and it alters the nature of the experience. Right, I agree I, with I, that. I agree with you because the other night that was a six-minute review. That was a six-minute review. Everything stopped. Stop forever, yep. and if you're a if you're a radio guy like me, and you don't you can't tell your audience about monitors. All I can do is tell them what I'm seeing at that particular time and talking about it for five or six minutes. What's going on? And I'll tell you, Mike, the one thing that really perturbs me, and I understand for the integrity of stats and all that, but if I'm in a thirty point game. If I'm in a 30-point game and there's one minute and 14 seconds left in the game and officials are going to this monitor to check out where the shot clock should be, I go ballistic. I, I, just, <laughs> I just don't understand the concept. Who cares? Get us off the floor. Let's move to the next game. And I know what people are going to say. Yeah, but, you know, then someone might score a bucket and those two points might have some bearing on the season. So uh, I can understand maybe a little bit of that, but it's just, like you said, it just sucks time out of a game, and I don't understand why. I just don't understand why we have to do that. I think it's, you know, the idea that technology fixes everything. Well, if you had the technology to make it perfect, I'd be all for that, especially if you had a tech, you know, and part of the perfection would be being able to do it in, you know, in a rapid period of time. Yeah, but we don't, seconds, and, and yeah. I don't think we ever will. <laughs> yeah, right. 15 seconds. I, hit a button. I, yep. Nope. Yeah. Yep. Nope. <laughs> well, I will say um, that I know that, uh, at least speaking for the Big Ten, there is going to be um, new technology next season. Um, now, I can't speak for whether or not that will speed things up. Um, hopefully it will. But right now, they're kind of at the mercy of the television producer who's sitting in the TV truck to feed them the replays. And they're on that, that's who they're on the headset with, basically, to say, let me look at this angle, let me look at that angle. And I was just talking to this with our producer that had the game the other day against Wisconsin. And he said, you know, this is some pressure on me that I didn't really ask for as a television right. producer. And. Uh, if you're really kind of at the mercy, if you have a good producer who knows the camera angles and can get him those replays in a timely manner, uh, it can really speed up the process. But then again, you're relying on 
you know somebody's uh, um, you know skill level and getting that done. I will say that I think I I do see both sides. I think there's a common ground in terms of uh, maybe we stick with the last two minutes and all the other stuff we keep the way it used to be because like to Larry's point it is very frustrating when you stop the clock to go back and and add two seconds to a shot clock in a you know 25 point game um, I think everybody would be on the side of letting that stuff go so certainly a uh, it just seems like this year there's been it's been more of a hot topic and probably because we're wasting more time than ever on these things so uh, another topic that uh, just came out yesterday at the NCAA uh, meetings was we're going to have a new start date to the college basketball season. So um, our fans will know that traditionally we start on a Friday night, uh, usually around November 10th or something like that. Uh, now it's going to be moved to earlier in the week on a Tuesday. Next season will begin on Tuesday, November 6th. Um, and so, Mike, what are your what are your thoughts on moving that date? Well, I'm I'm really in favor of that. Uh, I think it's a great idea, and I was really happy to hear that uh, ESPN had decided to move the Champions Classic to that date to really give uh, some spark to the uh, opening of the season. The the doubleheader that involves Michigan State and Kentucky, Kansas, and Duke uh, has been a you know kind of a uh, a big event now for six or seven years, and I think that that moving that to the first night will really help. I mean, the reality is that starting it on that Friday and often with, uh, you know, kind of a by-game scenario for a lot of the major powers hasn't really been a great grand opening for, for the college basketball season. Uh, it's easy for it to get buried uh, in a football weekend kind of mentality. So I'm pleased that they've decided to do this and, and try to give it, you know, a little bit more circumstance uh, as they as they open the uh, the college basketball season and and not you know sort of just you know flip the, the flip the switch and say oh by the way we're playing right right I, I I completely agree with that and as a as someone who puts together our non conference schedule I I'm uh, very much in favor of it too to space some games out um, it seems like uh, we will go times during the non conference where especially if an exempt tournament's involved. Uh, we may be playing four games over an eight-day stretch and then turn around over a 12-day stretch and have one or two games. So I like the fact that it allows us to uh, kind of space some non-conference games out. And um, hopefully that will allow the big – speaking for the Big Ten, we're gonna, we've added the two league games in December. So that's something that uh, I think just gives us some opportunity to kind of space our schedule out and also be a little more creative with our non-conference schedule. So – I know that there's that's always a, a challenge and an issue is for teams to play um, better opponents in the non-conference, and I think uh, starting earlier actually um, creates more opportunities for schools to do that. And I and I, you and I talked uh, this summer a little bit when you came by and watched us practice for the World University Games about how uh, November and December games some people don't turn on the TV and watch college basketball till January, but though there's a lot of great games in those two months. And I think this kind of helps that as well. Don't you? Oh, absolutely. And you know, I, I think that, uh, at some point, if we can get, uh, you know, more schedule, uh, more, more schedule makers, uh, to consider, you know, the value of playing at home, uh, you know, and when I, and I don't mean playing, I mean, playing, 
significant games at home, uh, and which means if you're going to play significant games at home, you're probably going to have to play significant games on the road. And right. uh, a lot of teams out there have really studiously avoided that, uh, somewhat for revenue, but I think also for competitive purposes. And I would, you know, I think that one of the weaknesses of college basketball scheduling at the moment is the number of high-level games in non-conference that are played in neutral environments. I don't think that that needs to be eliminated entirely. I'm not advocating for that. I think there's a great value to Maui and Atlantis and those sorts of things. Uh, but uh, we have too many games that are played in. I mean, the, the, the uh, CBS Sports Classic that was played in New Orleans this year be, before an audience of, like, their, their eight closest friends. Right, right. I mean, that's just not – th- those are two high-level games, and no one's there. It just should never happen. Uh, I would like to see more opportunities to see uh, teams play on their – you know, I mean, what's better than a game in Mackey? Uh, you know, Allen Fieldhouse, uh, Cameron. Those are, that's what makes college basketball great. right. And I think one of the one of the proposals that's kind of being floated out there is currently the way you the way schedules are set up is you get these they they're called exempt tournaments the Maui's and the uh, the Guardians class all these different uh, exempt events are Atlantis which we were in this year they're called exempt events because technically what they're saying is you get four games or three games for one t- t- right towards your your count. And one of the proposals is is to wipe that away and just say, look, you get 34 games, go schedule them as you want. And that would be a huge step in bringing these games to, to campuses because now you can say instead of going to Maui and playing three high-level games out there on the island, uh, I can play one or two of those on campus and then one or two of those on the road in those environments as you talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not against that necessarily. I, I, it would really cause problems for some of those events, I think. And I, you know, honestly, I think that your experience and Arizona's experience in, in Atlantis this year is is going to be uh, for certain teams. Uh, it's going to be a a, a turnoff. Uh, I think teams might be reluctant to do that because you, what happened to Purdue this year and what happened to Arizona showed how. You know, if you get on the wrong side of things, you don't have much time to fix it. Right, right. And and you know, with young, oddly, it's it happened with your guys, but um, you know, with a young team, uh, which a lot of teams are are having now, um, it really gets hard to fix it in 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 a short period of time. So I, they're gonna they're gonna struggle as it is. I think with with trying to get teams uh, based on on that to an extent. Uh, we'll see whether or not, you know, I think there's one of the reasons I like those events is because we still see, uh, you know, you get the opportunity, you guys played Western Kentucky, and Western mm-hmm. Kentucky's not going to get a ton of chances to play at Purdue, and that puts you in that circumstance, so that's good. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, the, the real problem is the, you know, the neutral court doubleheaders uh, or neutral court one-offs, Mm-hmm. Uh, that aren't as popular as, say, the Crossroads Classic. That, uh, but but teams schedule them because they don't they don't lose much. Right. You know they lo- they may they maybe lose a home date, but they need to get you know some high level competition. Well, if they go in a neutral court game, then then it's a you know it's quote unquote a fair fight. Uh, whereas if they go on the road, they know they're gonna you know they're gonna face a high level opponent and the road, and that you know they're gonna do that. Uh, ten times in their league or nine times in their league, and do they really want to do that again? 
Um, you know, I, I, I understand why coaches are averse to that. Right. Uh, but I also think that if they want the game to grow uh, or at least to stabilize, uh, then there, there are going to have to be some sacrifices along those lines. I know one of the reasons, like we played in the Jimmy V last year in New York, and, and exactly what you're talking about. Uh, we played Arizona State, and not many people in, in the garden um, for that game. And But the reason we did it was – it's a TV opportunity, national TV, and in a game like the Jimmy V Classic, um, you know they promo that thing a month in advance. So they're they're saying Purdue on ESPN, Purdue versus Arizona State, you know a hundred times in the weeks leading up to uh, to that game. So yeah, there's it, it, there's different types of value in those games, but as you said, there's uh, it's it would be hard to it's it's hard to duplicate a true road game in terms of getting your team ready. So I certainly. Uh, I certainly see both sides of that. Um, another big uh, topic is the one-and-done rule, and I know you've uh, just recently written something on that. Um, you Basically, your point was there's a, a misnomer that the one-and-done rule is, is detrimental to college basketball. Explain a little bit about your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a lot of people out there who say, well, one-and-done is bad for college basketball because players don't stay four years anymore, or they don't stay three years. And, and my, my, I never quite understand how that mentality came about because we had ten years in which those sorts of players never even showed up in college. Mm-hmm. And there was no impact uh, on whether or not players stayed. We still had guys like Carmelo Anthony and Chris Bosh. Uh, and players like that who only played a year in college. And so one and done really wasn't invented by the NBA's age limit rule. It just uh, became uh, more, you know, uh, more often practiced. Uh, and it, so the idea that college basketball is worse because of it is, you know, is a fabrication. Uh, it, it can't be worse to have Anthony Davis and John Wall and. Uh, Kevin Durant on in your games. I mean, that's just it's, it's completely illogical. Those guys are great players. They played hard for their teams. They played well. Uh, it was more entertaining for fans to see players like Kevin Durant than to not see Kev- players like Kevin Durant. Mm-hmm. Most of the educational stuff, the idea that they're only there for a term uh, and then skip class all, all through the spring, most of that is uh, is uh, exaggerated. Uh, if not downright false, I mean there are, there have been circumstances where that's happened. Ben Simmons uh, famously uh, uh, documented his in a in a in a documentary film. But most of the players that uh, the, the majority of the players that are doing that are are finishing their their years uh, at Duke and and Kentucky, which has had the vast majority of those types of players. Uh, it's almost universal, I think. In the, I think they've collectively had like 31 guys do it uh and 30 of them have finished the full year so it it, that part of it is you know is a fabrication and you know the idea that it's not good for uh for the colleges uh, or or the pros i uh, adam silver said that uh it's not working for anybody and my response as soon as i heard him say that to mike and mike on espn uh, was it's working for you? I mean, you get to scout these guys now. Yeah. Uh, you, they, you, you, you know whether or not they're, you know, uh, they're high-level players. You get them trained because, I mean, they're playing for great coaches like Mike Shishetsky or John Calipari or Bill Self or whomever. Uh, Tom Izzo has had some. 
they get trained by guys who know how to take guys out of high school basketball, which is not as sophisticated generally as college basketball, and, and college basketball is a little less so than the NBA, and bring them along in, so that it's not this you know, getting thrown into frozen water kind of deal that you would jumping from high school into the NBA. And you also get promoted players. Instead of Anthony Davis entering out of a Chicago high school uh, you know, in, in Class A or whatever, and no one's seen him play and no one knows whether he can handle NBA talent because he's been mostly playing against, uh, against smaller players, he gets to play at Kentucky and play in big stakes games. Uh, and then he also gets to be famous for playing in those games. And so the fans of whatever franchise draft him are excited. They know who Anthony Davis is. They know whether he can play. When the Washington Wizards drafted Kwame Brown, there were probably 2,000, maybe 3,000 basketball fans in America who'd seen him play. Right. So it, it, that part of it uh, is, is really important to the league. It's, it's gotten so big that now people get excited to watch those guys in July play summer league basketball. Oh, you know how is how is Lonzo Ball going to do in for the Lakers summer league team? Well, if Lonzo Ball gets drafted out of high school, there's not going to be any uh, uh, excitement about that. There might be a little bit of intrigue because no one knows what he does or who he is. But I just think that the the, the more this uh, this rule gets attacked and the and the the idea that it's it, it needs to be changed, uh, you know, I haven't seen anybody propose a realistic solution that is better for the game of basketball at all levels than what we have right now. Devil's advocate, though. What about those teams that never have a chance ever to get a one-and-done player? Well, I, that, but, but what difference does that make? You'd never – like, okay, let's just take – let's just say in, in the – you know, in the Big Brother says, okay, you can't have – all the top 20 guys are automatically – outlawed from playing college basketball and they all have to go to the NBA. Well, that would mean the number 21 guy would be the most important player for the colleges to have. And those players would probably still go to the same places they're going now. And, and the, and your theoretical school still wouldn't have any shot at that guy. It's all, there's always going to be a hierarchy in terms of where players want to go. And it's not always a set hierarchy. I mean, you know, Ten years ago, Kentucky was not a destination for the elite player. Uh, they, they were really struggling to recruit guys. And now since John Calipari got there, it is. Uh, you know, uh, it, Kansas has had great moments and some not. And, um, you know, obviously not very many in the last 30 years because they've had two fantastic coaches. But everything gets a little cyclical. But I think, by and large, they, you know, they're called the Blue Bloods for a reason because the, you know, Kentucky and Carolina and, and uh, UCLA and a few others have managed to uh, keep their programs enduring at a high level. I would agree with that. So um, the the other topic that's big is the transfer um, topic, and uh, there's I guess some talk right now at the NCAA level about um, immediate transfer or immediate eligibility with transfers. There's also some talk about fifth year players if they go. Uh, transferred to a school they can play right away but you would need to basically use two years worth of scholarship for them even though they would only play one year the theory being that they would need two years to finish their education um, in some type of like master's program 
Um, thoughts on, on, on transfers right now? Well, you know, I, that's a more complicated rule than most. Um, I'm a believer that the, the people who are arguing for immediate eligibility are arguing for the players to get a lesser deal, so to speak. Uh, the idea that, that that year in residence is a beneficial year for everyone who takes it. It's a it's an opportunity to improve uh, your skill level and and improve your connection and understanding of the team, and also to get basically a, a about a year and a half of free college because you get the year uh, you get the one year uh, of of you know no, not having to to play. Uh, in which you get an extra, so you get basically an extra year academically, and you get the summer tacked on beforehand. So it's almost a year and a half, and it, with all of that, uh, you you escalate the opportunity to graduate. Uh, you you know you you remove the peril of perhaps losing credits, which sometimes happens for transfer students and transfer athletes uh, that they, they lose credits when they move to a new school. And so all of that makes it a better deal for the athlete. And what I really worry about is that if there is, you know, if there were immediate eligibility in in a high-profile sport like basketball or football, I think you would have coaches, you know, look at it as, well, you know, I don't have a left tackle for this season. Or I don't have a, you know, I need a backup power forward, man, and I yep. need like eight minutes a game or twelve minutes a game or whatever. And that guy's averaging ten minutes a game, or excuse me, ten rebounds a game in the Missouri Valley Conference. So let's go get him, yep. and then he can fill my need for ten minutes a game. And then you know the idea that you know you're, there's no investment in that player, right? Because you're not having to you're you're not having to cover him for a full year uh, as a as a uh, as a transfer student. Uh, in which he can't play, and so I think that I think that the rule right now is protective of the athlete, and I don't think that the people who are arguing against it are, are acknowledging uh, the the level of protection it affords the athlete. I completely agree with that, and I think you would open a you would open a big door. Um, they were to scouring rosters and doing exactly what you talked about, going out and. Uh, making contact with with uh, with players behind the scenes through an AU coach through a high school coach, uh, and there would be uh, I think that would would be disastrous um, for our sport. So I I completely uh, agree with that. Um, wanted to uh, before we get to we conclude all these podcasts with a final four uh, questions, and they are kind of off topic things. But before we get to that, I just wanted to get your take on the Big Ten this year. Um, we're approaching the halfway point, um, seven games into the league. Um, just kind of your thoughts on uh, the race and uh, your surprises, um, both good and bad. Well, the obvious surprise is uh, pleasant surprise is Ohio State. I, I I thought they would be competitive, and I and the more I look at their roster, the more I I I, I like what I see from the Buckeyes. I, I you know I think when Chris went there. Uh, it, it helped to, that they had some players that left, uh, either by completing their careers or deciding to go elsewhere. I think that their their culture was improved by that. Uh, and then I, what was left in place? I mean, you had a star player coming back, a star level talent, I should say, and they've made him into a star level player in Kata Bates Diop and and Jay Sean Tate is a tough guy who's you know a warrior and. And they've done a really nice job of using him and in a versatile role. I think I think their uh, 
their experience with uh, Roosevelt Jones, I think his name was, at Butler, mm-hmm. um, it, that, that he was such a versatile guy, I think has really helped uh, with Jay Sean. And then C.J. Harris, I, I, don't, I think C.J. Harris is so underrated. Uh, he's done everything that you could ask a point guard to do across the board. He's been, you know, he's been uh, consistent and and he's defended well and he's and he gets the ball where it needs to go and all of that has worked out great for them. And so I think that's a really pleasant surprise. And I think Rutgers is a pleasant surprise as well. I mean, I think we expected that uh, Steve Peichel would make the culture better and make it a better team. Even though they're, you know, they're only two and five in the league, but I think we're seeing that that progress is being made, mm-hmm. uh, and and so it's working out well. You know, the, the, the disappointments are probably a little bit stronger. There's probably a few more of them. I, I should have mentioned Nebraska as well. They've done really well, uh, and you know, in a year when a lot of people were trying, to, I hate that whole hot seat thing, but they right. were trying to do that with Tim Miles. Um, it, it, on the on the downside, you know, I, I think Penn State should be better than they are. Uh, they have not quite performed at the level uh, that I think they're capable of. You know, Wisconsin, may, you know, the injuries have been, you know, so devastating to them. And I think youth was probably uh, under, you know, the youth of that team was probably underestimated in the preseason. And then you compound that with the injuries they've had, and it's just been really difficult uh, to keep that going forward. And then Iowa... Uh, a lot of people, including myself, thought that they might be the surprise team in the league, right. and it's not worked out that way at all. It's been uh, it's been very interesting in in the league this year, and and every August when the schedule comes out, I mean, I think I'm probably not alone in this. I think most fans probably take a look, and you you know you try to start guessing who which games you're going to win, which games you're going to lose. And the more and more I'm around this, the more I need to remind myself in August to stop doing that because the team that you think you're going to face when that schedule comes out in August, the team you actually face in January, February is always different. And there was a, I was just talking to, to Larry and Coach Painter the other day about this. We just, it never plays out as you anticipate. And as a team goes through a non-conference uh, part of their schedule and you always have injuries. You always have young guys that you don't know about on other teams that make off-season improvements that you never see coming. Um, it just seems like uh, it's never as you anticipate it. Certain games are a lot more, are a lot tougher than you think they were going to be when you saw the schedule in August, and then certain teams maybe uh, end up being easier than you thought they'd be when that schedule rolls out. So another uh, another wild year in our league for sure. Um, fi- the final four questions here with Mike DeCourcy of the Big Ten Network and Sporting News. Um, so for the first question here, Mike, is what is your go-to music of choice? Um, wow, that's a, it really varies uh, depending on my mood, but uh, my favorite band of all time is Steely Dan, so I guess really? that's probably what I would say. Outstanding, Steely, Steely Dan. Okay, very cool. Um, now, they just lost uh, a member of the, uh, of the band this last year, didn't they? Yes, Walter Becker. Who they, basically it was a. By the time it got to to uh, toward the end, it was. Uh, and when I mean end, I mean like toward the end of the seventies when they were stopped when they made their last of their uh, early albums. Uh, it was two guys, Walter Becker and uh, Donald Fagan, and, mm-hmm. and Walter passed away uh, this past fall, I believe. Uh, and so now Donald Fagan is continuing on uh, uh, to perform uh, as Steely Dan. Uh, 
Walter was the co songwriter and co producer, and so they probably won't make any more new music. But uh, you know, Donald's still out there performing the, the 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 great catalog that they have. And did you have you seen them perform before in the past? I did. Yeah, that, that was a fortieth birthday present uh, a while back. Uh, uh, was was getting the chance to see them live for the first time, and and it was really special. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm a big music guy, and so we always uh, I'm always intrigued when uh, to hear to hear what people uh, what music people enjoy. Uh, second question here on the final four: What's your favorite book, or maybe a really good book you've recently read? Uh, my favorite book. Uh, I, I am a huge Nick Hornby fan. Um, I think I've read everything he's written except uh, his one novel about a boy. Um, and I, the book I would recommend is called Fever Pitch. Uh, and it's, it's one that can sort of maybe explain the obsession with soccer a little bit, but it's really about uh, being a, 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 an over-the-top sports fan of any sort. Uh, and it, it was made into a movie about, uh, about a soccer fan, um, uh, a while back, and then it was, as I said, it works with any, and it was translated to, into a, a baseball movie uh, with uh, uh, with Drew Barrymore um, and uh, uh, what's his name uh, that hosts the Tonight Show, Jimmy uh, Jimmy Fallon, Fallon, Jimmy Fallon. Fallon yes. Yeah. So that was about ten years ago or so. So I I, rec- I would recommend that book to anybody. Uh, it, it's anybody who loves sports, whether you like soccer or not, I think would find that. Very, very enjoyable. Are you a bit? Are you an avid reader? Do you read a lot of books? I try. I, you know, I'm I'm a slow reader, so I don't get to read as many books as I'd like. But I love to read. Uh, it's one of the things I like to do on vacation is just go lay on a beach and try to plow through three books or so uh, in a week. Yeah, Larry and I are big uh, book guys too. Um, my wife try is trying a New Year's resolution to do 52 books in 52 weeks. Oh, that and, I can never do that. And I thought, so I thought, yeah, that's really cool. And then after like three days in the new year, I thought, this is causing more stress than anything because I feel like <laughs> I'm falling behind. So I scrapped the idea in yeah, well, three or four days. I have, I have an interesting story on that, too, is because uh, when I came out of the Army, I really, I, I goofed around my college career prior to going into the Army, and it was taking me like a decade to get done. <laughs> so I wanted to uh, accelerate it. So I took the Evelyn Woods Dynamic Reading Course. Right. Now, listen to me. I go from maybe 80%, uh, I, I go like 200, 300 words a minute to about 80% uh, retention. retention to like... 1300 words to like 96% retention. I'm taking graduate level history classes. I finished my last year and two quarters in, uh, I mean, in a year. I mean, I'm like, so what's the I'm secret? all world. Well, the secret is you don't, you don't read, you don't read what you're seeing. You just look at it and you retain it. So the these, the ands, all the words that fill up a page is not part of what you're seeing. But and you just you use the hand as a guide and just go and it works. Now I'm telling you, it works. Now I I had one B in my last year and a half or two years of college. I mean I had one B. Everything else was straight A's. And I had a lot of D's and F's before I got there. So my but the, but the whole point is I'm a broadcaster. So what do I do? I'm reading commercials. So now you're going back to what the principle is. Hi everyone. You know so much. You know. The mention of Fisherman's War probably yeah. sets you to dreaming about Dungeness Crab, Babylon. So you're, so you're reading every word and enunciating it 
as you're doing it, and that's what you do as you read. That's why you're so slow, because you don't want to <laughs> read. You don't want to read. That's not what you're doing. But man, I tell you, you want to do 52 books in 52 weeks? That's Take that course. And now, now I'm saying you're not gonna have. You're gonna see her go. <laughs> you say, you remember it? Now, part of the isn't part of the fun of reading a book is like watching a TV show. You want to sit there and enjoy it, no? Yeah, so, yeah. You don't want it to feel like a job. No, and exactly. That's what I felt like fifty-two and fifty-two would be like. So <laughs> again, I scrapped it. Although I'm reading a a book on Otis Redding uh, that came out that is fantastic. There's a lot of uh, historical references um, in it um, around his childhood, and uh, I'm reading Human Mind about the serial killers. John Douglas. The somehow that started. does not surprise me that that would be the <laughs> the book you would pick. Okay, uh, the third question of the final four here, Mike, is uh, if you could wave a wand and do any other profession, what would it be? Uh, I think I'd want to direct a movie. I think I'd like to do that. Really? That is, yeah. Explain that, explain that one real quick. I'm a, I, I love film. Uh, I'm a huge film buff, and um, mm. so I, I, I've always been fascinated with the process, uh, and so I think that would be a pretty cool thing to do. Do you have a favorite director? Uh, I hesitate. I, I won't say who my favorite director judge. used to be because he's pretty unpopular these days. Oh, oh, yeah. uh, so I will go with, uh, I'll say Spielberg. Can't go wrong with that. I've, I, um, I am a huge Clint Eastwood fan, although that wavered a little bit a few years ago for a uh, stunt he pulled, um, <laughs> which we won't get into. But uh, I've, I've, read a lot and seen a lot about him as a director and how he's kind of so um, so different uh, than most uh, most directors who are very uh, demanding he's kind of taken the opposite approach where he's just kind of very laid back and it, 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 there's no like all right roll you know take and everybody ready it's just kind of like all right well, let's kind of start the camera and you start when you're ready and that kind of thing it's it's very interesting so uh, that that's the first I think uh, movie director answer we've had to that Fa- f- uh, favorite movie of all time Rocky really yeah really What's not the a- best but my favorite yeah favorite it's favorite uh, I'm I'm kind of like uh, mm, I don't know if I could pick a favorite movie of all time Outlaw Josie Wales is my favorite of all time and that would be not a a movie that would say hey I can't wait to see it, but it's the one line by the old Indian who says, the will to persevere. That's the one that gets me. But um, but how about our bowling movie? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's a uh, bowling mo- kingpin with Woody Harrelson and Bill Murray. Oh, right. Larry and I reference this movie all the time, and it drives Coach Painter up the wall. <laughs> <laughs> and so when we, are on, when we are on road trips, we are constantly saying kingpin lines, and to... We get a lot of eye rolls, and uh, although you know you've been around Coach Painter enough, he is a um, he, he's got a great sense of humor, and I know I know he would say Shawshank Redemption because I've asked him before on his on his favorite movie. So uh, last question, one. last question here on the final four, Mike. What is um, a little known fact that no one or very few people know about you? Um, it, it's connected to that. Uh, some people know this. If you follow me on Twitter, you might know this. I, I for I believe it's now thirty-two or thirty-three years in a row. I've seen every 
movie nominated for Best Picture before the Oscars are handed out. Wow, really? Yeah, I try. I I, I try to do that every year now. Um, I, 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 I it started when my wife refused to go see the right stuff with me, and then and then it, <laughs> you know, and I said, okay, from now on, I'm doing this whether she goes or not. Um, <laughs> and so I've I've done some really strange things. You know, I've made some. Like one time I was, a, I was covering a fight in Vegas and I needed to go see uh, The Kiss of the Spider Woman. This is around 86 or 87. And so I took a cab to see it. I watched the movie. And then when I came out, I couldn't get a cab. This was the days before Uber. <laughs> and so like I started to walk back. And, and it's like in the desert, man, it's a lot farther than you think it is. And I still don't even, I, like eventually I think at some point I flagged down a cab and got in. But uh it, it feels like you look like you see the strip and you're like, well, it doesn't look like that far. Right. And you start to walk. And happened it's to a lot me. Farther than you think. Happened to me. I got lost. We, I got lost walking. Remember, we I was just talked the, about this a couple of podcasts ago about the strip and how when something seems like it's right there, it is not. It is a long I, way uh, away. Rob Blackman, who's you know, Rob, uh, Mike, uh, and uh, he he said uh, when he worked in arena football he said now nah, you got to go we're staying somewhere and he said nah, can i walk over to the what's the spiral thing the thing it goes like stratosphere. The needle, the stratosphere i said can you walk over to that he said heck yeah we me and so and so we did it one time and i said okay i'm gonna do it and i was you know exercising a lot and i did it and i walked over there and i got lost and i was out <laughs> I mean, I was out where you couldn't get a cab. Everything was everything was walled in. It was it was terrifying. You remember me? It was yep. terrifying. You were shaking. I was gone like I was gone like six hours, and I, I my cell phone was dead. I mean, this was awful. I didn't know what to do. So, Mike, that's a pretty good uh, that's a pretty good way to uh, be able to get those movies in, if even when the wife doesn't want to go with you, because now yeah. now it's it's a must do. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So uh, she's she's really good. She likes to go, and we will, you know, we'll, it, when they come out, if we have the opportunity, we'll hit two in a day or something like that. But uh, wow. um, but it, that's that's how it got started. Which she just did not think she wanted to see that movie, and it turned out when I, we finally did see it, I loved it. I I don't think she loved it as much as I did, but it was a great flick. <laughs> so now, when when you when the Oscars approach, do you make your selections for best film, oh, best yeah. actor? Actress? I rank the uh, on Twitter. I'll rank. One to however many nine or ten or whatever however many they nominate now yeah you'll see it when it comes out when I get when I finally get the last one in the bag that then I'll put that out now how do you do you try to stay away from predictions yeah you know I used to be in Oscar pools and stuff like that but I'm not I haven't done that in a while so uh, I, I I just try to say what I would like yeah okay well that's very interesting and and what is your uh, what's your success rate would you say. Oh, I'm almost all, you know, in terms of what they like versus what I like, I'm 100% wrong. Just about. <laughs> I've always tried to figure out the rhyme or reason to that, and I, I'm sure politics comes into it behind the scenes, favors and things like that, but I, I, don't, I don't follow it close enough to know for sure. So, Well, Mike, we want to thank you for taking time here today to join us. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, and uh, we enjoy uh, your work with BTN and Sporting News and uh, – um, just uh, appreciate you taking time with us here. Guys, it's been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for having me. Thank All right. you. Thank you very much. We'll see you down the road. Mike DeCourcy for uh, episode 36 here on the Boilerball Podcast. I want to thank uh, everybody for listening. 
uh, and all the, uh, the comments and everything that you guys have uh, provided us. I still get emails uh, with suggestions. Uh, keep in mind, we do read those and we do uh, we do take those to heart. I'm always trying to make the uh, the podcast better and uh, Sylvia Booker working round the clock to line up stellar guests as we've had recently. So she's got some uh, great things in store for us the rest of this season. I uh, want to thank everybody again, episode 36 here on the podcast. And until next time, be curious, be informed, and be well. 